Hey, y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Daddy. This week on the show, NPR political reporter Danielle Kurtzleben and NPR Morning Edition editor Ashley Brown. All right, let's start the show. Hey, y'all. From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Happy weekend. Happy weekend. Happy weekend to you, Sam. Every week I'm just like, we made it. Oh, my God, I know. Absolutely. Celebration. As Aunt Betty said, I have two great guests in studio. Ashley Brown, editor for NPR's Morning Edition, and Danielle Kurtzleben, my old friend, political reporter here at NPR. Feels like home being in the studio with you again. I know. Miss you, bud. Yeah. Uh, Fun fact, both of my panelists today came in to tape the show on their day off. (laughs) Y'all are (laughs) all-stars. No, I am super excited to be here, and I thought I was going to have to drive through a hurricane to get here, Sam. Yeah, so, so I'm still going to do it. I appreciate you. <laughs> I appreciate you. Totally same, yeah. yeah. Although I thought I was going to have to metro through a downpour, but eh, looks Not like it's fair. swinging away from us. Yeah. So far, yeah. Also in studio are the sounds of John Legend, and there's a reason I'm playing him this week. It is because he is the newest uh, EGOT. That's right. Right, yeah. So this is his first song, his first single from his first album back in 2004. It's called Used to Love You. And when I heard John Legend back in college, I said, I like this kid. But I never would have thought he would go on to win an Emmy, several Grammys, an Oscar, and a Tony. That's That's fantastic. There's uh, well over a dozen EGOTs. Some of the more famous ones are Rita Moreno, Whoopi Goldberg, Goldberg, Mel Brooks. But uh, John Legend won his Oscar for his song Glory from the film Selma. He won his Tony for his role as co-producer of a Broadway production of the play Jitney. He's won 10 Grammys, including Best New Artist in 2006. And this past Sunday, he won a Creative Arts Emmy for producing a TV production of Jesus Christ Superstar, which he also starred in as Jesus. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Superstar. Mm -hmm. I just, I don't know. It's like, (laughs) he's like one of those kind of like always working dudes. Mm -hmm. And he can sing. All right, Ashley and Danielle are here with me to look back on the week of news and culture and everything else. We're going to get to all of that really quickly. But first, I want to send our Friday listeners back in our feed to our latest Tuesday episode. I was chatting with director and writer Lauren Miller Rogan. We talked about a new film she made for Netflix called Like Father. It stars not just Kelsey Grammer, but also Kristen Bell. It involves karaoke. And Lauren also shot this entire film on a moving cruise ship during an actual cruise. I have had multiple people like tell me very out of nowhere, have you seen this movie? Yes. And not only that, but it's it's a movie that has sucked people in where they're like, I sat down for five minutes. Like, and then even you're to, crying like, at the end. It. That is yes. literally what yes. happened to me when I watched that See? movie. You watched Lake Father? <laughs> I did. Yes, yes, it sure sounds did. like magic. It is, it is, I have not watched it. It is yet. very warm hearted. All right, let's get into it. I'm going to start by having my panelists describe their week of news in just three words. Danielle, you're up first. All right. My three words are somebody to love. Okay. Yeah. But no, and this isn't so I, I'm cheating a little. This isn't so much about this week of news is about this political season of okay. news, because this week primary season pretty much ended. Uh, aside from the Election Day primaries, primaries are over. And I was in Kentucky, Kentucky's sixth congressional district this week. I was Where's covering that? uh that is around the area around Lexington, okay. Kentucky. And I was covering a candidate named Amy McGrath. My beat this year is this record-breaking wave of women who are running. So I'm running around the country talking to a lot of these candidates, a lot of women voters, uh, which means this tends to be on the Democratic side more because that's where the wave okay. in general is. Well, because I've seen some data that indicates that women are running less as Republicans this year. There, 
they're running hmm. about as far as the nominations go on the Republican side, they're about where they were in 2016, which is usually low, which is usually quite a bit lower than it is for Democrats. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, I went to this Amy McGrath thing. She spoke at a county Democrats rally. So a lot of candidates were there, but she was the headliner, I guess. And the voters just love this woman. Hmm. You know, first of all, she's a woman. People like women this year. Uh, is that a bad way to You can it? say it. You're a woman. <laughs> I mean, no, but I, I, women, so hot right now. We're on trend. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're just so cool. No, but I mean, this year, women Democrats really are, for a variety of reasons, uh, really, they have really high win percentages. Is so, it a response to Trump? Yeah. Oh, that is okay. definitely a part of it. Okay. So, But that's what I'm getting at. It's like many of these other women who have taken on this national stature of her, you have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you have Ayanna Presley in Massachusetts. The sense that I get when I'm out on the trail, I may be wrong, but educated guess, it's not just that Democrats are excited about their candidates this year and they're excited to vote. They're excited to be excited. You know, huh. like they are. Ex- huh. there is almost a palpable sense of, Oh, I'm glad I like my candidate. I am glad I have someone to root for. In general, from your travels across mm-hmm. the country, are you feeling more excitement among Democratic voters than Republican voters? That's hard to tell because, again, I'm going to more Democratic than Republican districts. Because they're by... women who are running. And... Right. Okay. But both sides this year seem to have be in this kind of... I don't quite want to say cult of personality, but there's this like having an actual person and not just a policy and not just a party to latch on to. And Republicans have it in Trump and then they have their candidates who either, you know, go along with him or, you know, maybe don't run as close to him. Well, and, you know, with all of this, it still feels like the midterms, in spite of charismatic candidates on both sides of the aisle, it's really going to be. About Donald Trump. Yeah. As, midterms are always a referendum on the yeah, president, right? Yeah. And right now, everything is about Donald Trump, yep. including my three words. Let's hear it. <laughs> which are onto the list. And the words onto the list were three words that were part of Donald Trump's uh, tweets this week questioning the official acknowledged death toll uh, from Puerto Rico uh, in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria. Um, as Hurricane Florence is on the East Coast right now, Lots of people are talking about Donald Trump and the federal response to Hurricane Maria last year. Trump faced a lot of criticism for uh, lax and slow response to that storm. Um, and the and the numbers and figures about the recovery in Puerto Rico are just devastating. It took 11 months for power to get all the way back in the island. Um, the death toll... Uh, over time came to be acknowledged as pushing up to 3,000. Um, it was bad. But um, Trump, in tweets this week, denied that death toll. He wrote in full, 3,000 people did not die in the two hurricanes that hit Puerto Rico. When I left the island after the storm had hit, they had anywhere from 6 to 18 deaths. As time went by, it did not go up by much. Then a long time later, they started to report really large numbers, like 3,000. He continues in a second tweet, and this one, this is where it really gets a bit outlandish. He says, this was done by the Democrats in order to make me look as bad as possible when I was successfully raising billions of dollars to help rebuild Puerto Rico. If a person died for any reason, like old age, just add them onto the list. Bad politics. I love Puerto Rico. It was a strange, strange, strange thing for a president to argue in a tweet. 
Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, also <laughs> somewhat par for the course for this president yeah. to right. make that kind of argument in a tweet. Um, but, you know, clearly the you know officials in Puerto Rico, you know, you had Governor Ricardo Rosello uh, give a resounding denial of that claim. Um, yeah. uh, and the mayor of San Juan, Carmen Yulín Cruz, also denied it. Um, you know, I guess where's the love? If you know, yeah. I love Puerto Rico. Like, really, where is it where if he's right. you know keeps getting in these spats with the you know leaders on the island uh, and is also denying what studies have shown? Yeah. what all the officials down there believe. Right. My thing, and I and I still don't understand this about Donald Trump. When he has the opportunity to take a victory lap over whatever good things he and his White House may have done, he picks the alternate route. And he does things like these Puerto Rico tweets. This is now, this week marks 10 years since the biggest, baddest week of the financial recession, when the economy was just going to heck. The economy's doing very, very well right now. Mm -hmm. And Trump's been in office long enough to be able to take some credit for that. Wages are going up. Unemployment is under 4%. Why don't you just talk about that, man? Even if presidents can't really take credit for that. Even if, but you know what? Presidents do. (laughs) I know. But, like, presidents do. Yeah, yeah, they do. To a certain extent, Obama took credit for some of the economy. Oh, not just to a certain extent. Yeah. And so, like, I don't understand why this president, less than two months ahead of the midterm elections, doesn't take the time and opportunity to cast a positive message about him and his party instead of doing this. In part, I mean, this tweet is an extension of so much of what Donald Trump does, though. And part of it is this casting of himself as the underdog. Like, look, he is not the underdog. He's, He's in the He's the leader House. of the free world right. at this Correct. point. Correct. At some point, yeah, that stops. At, no, but he gets he a lot... He still feels aggrieved. He, well, he he feels aggrieved, and it, you could argue that it's good strategy to act aggrieved, because then... Because his base feels aggrieved. Yes, it's a rallying cry. Yeah. Your, your supporters could say... Yeah, you know what? We are They are know, out to get us. Yeah, we and you know it's it's a way to sort of get your troops together and yeah. a- ahead of what could be a tough fight this November yeah. Yeah. and well, yeah. I'm not saying I I have no idea if he's thinking that hard about strategy but that is a potential yeah. uh upside to this. And this also underscores for me um an underlying sentiment I think many Americans on the mainland have about Puerto Rico. We don't see them as fully American. I think a lot. I, one, there are a lot of folks that are confused and don't know that Puerto Ricans are American citizens. Correctly, right. and I think there are a lot of people in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria who spoke about Puerto Ricans as if they didn't deserve our full attention and care right. in as the way that Texans might get. Aid was foreign aid, which is yeah. not the right. case at all. <laughs> I mean, like yeah. this death toll is worse than Hurricane Katrina, and it seems that we care about it less. And that is bothersome, and 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 Trump's tweets underscore that for me. But. Yeah, I'm going to leave on a sour note there. <laughs> uh, Ashley, you have three words. I do have three All words. Right. Um, uh, the words I'm going to go with are perception versus reality. And, you know, that could certainly apply to a lot of things when we talk about the Trump administration. Um, mm-hmm. um, but when I think about perception and versus reality, I'm also specifically thinking of the case of Botham John, uh, the uh, young man who was shot and killed in his apartment in Dallas last week mm-hmm. um, by Dallas police officer Amber Geiger. So the basics of the case mm-hmm. are, um, you know, according to an affidavit, uh, Amber Geiger was a police officer. She thought she was going into her apartment. She lives in the same building as this man. That's correct. Um, and she lives on the third floor. Jean lived on the fourth floor. She was actually going into the fourth floor apartment. Um, she thought it was her own apartment. She and says she-, <laughs> she says she thought it was her own apartment and that uh, Jean was an intruder. This is what she says she thought at the mm-hmm. time. And uh, 
then she says she fired shots and uh, Jean was killed. Mm. And there are and there are already multiple versions of this story, depending on which report you um, like you see. So there's questions about whether or not she was able to open the door herself or not. Lots of questions. Lots of questions, lots of inconsistencies. And, you know, I think any time we have a shooting, especially a shooting that involves the death of an unarmed black person, um, a lot of questions about the perception of who that person is or was um, start to to come out. There's a lot of criticism, uh, you know, towards media coverage of, you know, victims of these crimes, right? Well, there was a headline Um, this week that just pointed out that there happened to be marijuana in, yes, exactly. in this I saw that apartment. Last night, exactly. Yeah. That yeah. to me just it feels really icky. And that's exactly that what I mean about the perception. It's like yeah. what are we trying to say about Botham Jean in this moment? And you know, there's also a video of uh, Geiger. I think when she was turning herself in at some point, where you see her kind of crumple to the ground, put her face in her hands, and already it's all—it's almost like we're trying to not we, but it's almost like there's this effort to portray Geiger as human. I mean, there are so many questions surrounding this case and I get that everyone wants answers I want answers the first time I saw a headline about this I was just stunned I was like how does this happen that you're in your own apartment sleeping and then all of a sudden a cop comes in and you're dead sleeping while black (laughs) I mean it's just it just seems like where can you be safe absolutely I think our framing of a lot of these police involved shootings is subconsciously even um, purposed and, 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 and made in a way to give these officers the universal benefit of the doubt. Absolutely. And I don't know if that is always a good thing. Yeah, I don't know yet if it's a good thing, if it's a fair thing. Um, But again, I mean, the thing that was also a little bit stunning and maybe refreshing about the headline that described uh, marijuana being found in John's apartment, um, you had people who are like on both the right and the left of the ideological spectrum kind of coming together and saying, how is this germane to this case? Like, you know, Dana Lash, am I saying her name correctly? Uh, The NRA spokesperson who's, Mm -hmm. you know, pretty conservative and very, very vocal about, you know, the Second Amendment even said this is not germane to the case, (laughs) which, you know, I think a lot of people were like, okay, you know, if, (laughs) you know, this NRA spokesperson is (laughs) contending the way you're presenting the story, then you maybe have some things to think about. Yeah. Well, it's also another instance of a young black man being killed by a police officer. We're what? three, four, five years into the Black Lives Matter movement. And there's some days where it feels like nothing has actually changed. Yeah, yeah. All right, time for a break. When we come back, I'll chat with a political scientist. He will explain why all of our politics right now feels really national and not local uh, and why that might not be a good thing. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. We'll be right back. The following message comes from our sponsor, Capital One. The CreditWise app recently released three features, including Experian and TransUnion credit alerts. Here's CreditWise designer Bev Yang on how her team developed the alerts in response to users' concerns about identity fraud. A really good way to detect if you have been a victim is to regularly review your credit report to see if anything's inaccurate or if there are signs of theft or fraud. Credit reports can be hard to read for people. There's a lot of information and it can be overwhelming. But what we do in CreditWise is try and make sure that the most important information is brought to the top. We'll send you an alert anytime we see that anything meaningful changes on your TransUnion or Experian 
credit report. And so all you have to do is look at the alert and decide for yourself whether that was something that you actually did or something you need to take action on. CreditWise is free for everyone, whether you're a Capital One customer or not. You can find CreditWise in your app or Play Store now. What's unique about the human experience, and what do we all have in common? I'm Guy Raz. Every week on TED Radio Hour, we go on a journey through the big ideas, emotions, and discoveries that fill all of us with wonder. Find it on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. We are back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with two great guests today, Danielle Kurtz-Laban, roving political reporter for NPR. That's me. And Ashley Brown, editor extraordinaire at NPR's Morning Edition. Extraordinaire. Thank you, Sam. (laughs) I'm less roving, but extraordinaire, I'll take it. Well, your schedule's always roving. (laughs) That's very true. People don't know on the outside listening in. Most of the staff on your show, they rotate through various different shifts every That's few right. months. What That's shift right. are you on right now? Because the um, show is staffed 24-7. 24-7, yeah. So, you know, this week I've been on what we call the swing shift. So okay. I start around 3 p.m. Okay. I get to leave maybe around midnight, oh, um, maybe a little bit <laughs> earlier if I'm lucky. <laughs> Um, so much fun. But, you know, that's still better than, you know, the shift that might start at 1030 p.m. Oh, or midnight. The things NPR does to bring y'all the news. I know, <laughs> I know, but we love it. Yes. Um, can we talk about the midterms? Can we? I mean, yeah. we have to talk about <laughs> the midterms. We don't have a choice. They're inescapable. <laughs> we have two more months of <laughs> yeah, not stopping talking know. about the midterms. Yeah. They're less than two months away. And right now it feels as if the entire conversation about the midterms has been national. Will Democrats take the U.S. House? Can they take the U.S. Senate? But there are many, many more races happening at the local level. People are going to be electing governors, state reps, mayors, city council members. And those officials might do more to actually affect your everyday life than Congress. But if you're anything like me, you are paying less attention to those local races. I had a chat with someone very smart on this stuff recently about why that's the case. Uh, His name is Dan Hopkins. He's a political scientist from the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, He has a new book out called The Increasingly United States, How and Why American Political Behavior Nationalized. Uh, We also talk about why people like me usually know exactly what the president just tweeted, but may not even know who our own city councilman is. That's me. <laughs> that is, is that y'all too? Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, look know, at Danielle. I know my city council. Okay. Well, then you don't need Boom. to hear this conversation. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah. So Dan talked with me from the studios of WHYY in Philadelphia. Let's take a listen. Professor Hopkins, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So in this book, you're arguing that all politics is very, very national right now. First, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that American voters today are focused almost exclusively on what's happening in Washington, Mm D.C. So if you ask somebody on the street, you know, what's happening in politics, they would never think that you meant politics in California or in Pennsylvania and Sacramento and Harrisburg. They, they would know immediately that you were talking about Washington, D.C., because today's voters are so focused almost blindingly on what's happening in federal politics to the exclusion of state and local politics. I love this phrase you use to describe this phenomenon. Uh, you call it the presidential paradox, this idea that people care more about who is president and know a lot about the president and are obsessed with the presidency, but might not even know who their mayor is. It is a weird kind of... St- 
state for voters to be in at a time when there is so much information to be had about everything, like, in their smartphones, these supercomputers that are in their pockets? Like, part of me reading your book said, well, this is just about folks being lazy, us being lazy. I think you're really right to, to draw our attention to that presidential paradox, because when you, when you interview American citizens in surveys, you ask them, what level of government do you pay the most attention to? Overwhelmingly, they say, I think it's around 78% of people say they follow the presidency most closely. But if you ask them a different question, if you ask them, what level of government has the most impact on your day-to-day life? Hmm. Then they're not focused on the presidency. Only 44% of people say that the federal government in D.C. has the most impact on their day-to-day lives. And I think that's what makes it so perplexing. Um, but I think it's, it's partly driven by us, that our attention is drawn to conflict, to wins and losses, to spectacle. And so if other people are watching and talking about all the symbolic issues in Washington, D.C., we so easily get distracted from what's happening in our in our communities. Yeah. And I should point out when I say that voters can be lazy and not seek out information about local politics, I'm talking about myself. I don't know who my city council person is. I haven't known for years. <laughs> like, I am part of this problem that you speak of. You are, you are not alone in saying <laughs> that, you know, you may not follow local and state politics as closely as you like. I do a lot of, of surveys on this question. And so many people are apologetic when I ask them things hmm. like, who's your governor? Who's your mayor? I get these these very detailed notes back that say, well, you know, I just moved here and <laughs> I'd really I'd like to know, but but I don't. Yeah. So, so yeah. The, the question then is, how do we get to this point? And I think that that partly it's about our information environment. OK. So if you think back to, um, say, the 1950s or the 1960s, the main ways that we got information about politics, whether it was a a broadcast TV station, whether it was a local newspaper, they had a lot of incentive to tell you information that was relevant to people living in a specific place. So here, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, they would have read the Philadelphia Inquirer and they would have read it because maybe they wanted to know about Philadelphia politics, but maybe they wanted to know about the Phillies or the Eagles or the weather. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, though, if I want to get the Eagles score or the Phillies score or the weather, I don't need to rely on the Philadelphia Inquirer, and I don't need to turn on local broadcast television. Instead, I can go to websites or to sources that that play to that very, very specific interest. Mm. There was something else that you brought up in the book as as far as the reasons that our politics are so national now. You talked about the changing way in which Americans conceptualize their identity. And I want to talk about that for a minute, this idea that being someone of a certain age group or of a certain race or a certain gender is just a much stronger predictor of political behavior than it might have been in decades past. And that 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 also contributes to a nationalization of politics because you are a young black voter or an older woman voter wherever you are across the country. Absolutely. And I think it's a really, really important idea. And one of the things that I came to see in writing the book was that if you ask people, one of the first, you know, you, you meet somebody new, one of the first questions you're likely to get is, well, where are you from? Mm-hmm. But that's not going to be as predictive of whether and how they engage in politics as knowing how they identify racially and ethnically or questions about religion, gender, sexual orientation. All of a sudden, I have a lot of predictive power about whether they're Democrats or whether they're Republicans. 
All throughout my prep for this interview and thinking about how our politics have become nationalized, I just kept saying to myself, Trump, Trump, Trump. And I wonder, could there even have been a Donald Trump as president without our politics being so nationalized? I, th- I think the answer is no. Hmm. And I, I will say as well, I think I, like you, think that, that President Trump represents the culmination of or at least a, a, a very, very high watermark on a process through which we've gotten more and more nationalized. But think, think about President Trump, right? This is somebody who is very, very closely identified with New York. Mm-hmm. And um, there, were, there were real questions just a few years ago about whether um, loyal Republicans in, say, the South or in the West we're going to be very excited about a standard bearer from New York. And indeed, Ted Cruz in, in some of the Republican debates tried to play this up as a wedge. Yeah. Um, but I think that it's precisely because both the Republican Party leadership and the Democratic Party leadership value controlling D.C. over all else that Donald Trump became an acceptable candidate to many Republican elites. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, I, I get the feeling that you think the nationalization of our politics is a bad thing. But are there some regards in which this is a good thing? I'm thinking in terms of like engagement, maybe even. So that's a great question. And yes, I would say overall, I think it's a it's a worrisome trend. OK. Partly because local politics has a number of attributes that I think may make it in some sense more manageable, less divisive. So local politics is often about distributive questions. You know, where are we going to draw a school district boundary? How are we going to zone this community? And in some of those, there's an opportunity for for win-win politics, right? There's an opportunity to cite schools, to do things that build trust. Local politics also at least sometimes can benefit from face-to-face dynamics. When you think about national politics, often what comes to mind are divisive symbolic issues, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Questions of whether football players stand for the national anthem. The, The kinds of questions where there's not actually an immediate policy solution and there's no compromise that's going to make everybody happy. Yeah. So I worry, I worry a lot that as we move to a more nationalized politics, we're going to reduce trust in politics and we're going to be focusing more and more on the kinds of symbolic issues hmm. that we just can't solve. But is there a silver lining? Well, I think there is a bit of a silver lining and you, and you see this nowadays and you saw this in 2010 with the Tea Party and it's exactly as you said with respect to political engagement that if you want to mobilize people, whether it's on the left or on the right, you need to convince them that something's at stake. Mm. And nowadays, with people so engaged in national politics, if you can link what's happening in their communities, what's happening in their states, to dynamics in national politics, you can mobilize people. And so if there's an upside here, yeah, I think it's that local organizers, state and local candidates now have a vocabulary, a new way to, to turn people out and to get them energized. Yeah. I don't want to ask you to predict November stuff for me, but I want you to maybe foreshadow a bit how these trends of our politics becoming so national, how that plays out in these November midterms. There are a lot of candidates that are trying to run away from Donald Trump. I'm thinking about a handful of Republicans that are running in California. They're staying away from Trump. They don't want him to come campaign for them. There are Democrats like Connor Lamb in Pennsylvania or Doug Jones, who won by staying away from their national parties. Like, could we see a lot of candidates in the midterms this fall try to buck the trend of politics being nationalized? I think that almost in, in, in many of the recent elections we've seen, 
one of the parties is advantaged by the national environment. Mm -hmm. And so very consistently, the other party is going to try to localize the race, Mm. try to not focus on national issues. But But what I'm arguing, and I think what I try to show in the book, is that that's getting harder and harder. So if you think to the 2014 Senate races, right? In 2014, the Democrats were defending a whole set of Senate seats, often in um, smaller, more rural states. Mm -hmm. All of them argued that they weren't in lockstep with the National Party, Mm -hmm. and all of them lost. So Mm -hmm. I think that in any given election, there are going to be a lot of candidates who want to denationalize, but they're only going to be able to do so within certain bounds. And those bounds are getting tighter and tighter. All right. Thanks again to Dan Hopkins, political scientist and author at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, What do you guys make of that theory? I think it's true. I agree with it. I mean, again, based on the conversations I had uh, before the California midterms, um, you know, we were kind of in the 48th, 49th districts over there, Mm -hmm. um, which I'm sure you're getting to know well now. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, we just kind of knocked on some doors, asked people to talk to us. And there was a little bit of shame. Like people kind of didn't want to admit that they didn't know who was on the ballot. Um, Or some of them said the ballot book this year in terms of all the candidates running the primaries is just so long. It's Mm -hmm. impossible to get a handle, get a grip on who's running and what they stand for. Because there was just there were just so many candidates um, in California this year. So um, but all of them had an opinion about Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. (laughs) For sure. Yeah. I also don't know yet if I think it's altogether good or bad for democracy or for American democracy right now, because in spite of our politics feeling very national right now, a lot of Americans are just more engaged in consuming political information and news than they were before. That's very, very true. true. It's yeah. much more accessible than it was before. True. Uh, time for a break. When we come back, my favorite game, Who Said That? Support for this podcast and the following message come from Netflix and their upcoming film, Hold the Dark, a gripping psychological thriller directed by Jeremy Solnier. Revenge and horror unfold in the treacherous Alaskan wilderness when a retired wolf expert is summoned to investigate a child's disappearance. A riveting examination of human nature and the mysteries of the wilderness. Starring Jeffrey Wright, Alexander Skarsgård, and Riley Keough. Watch the new film, Hold the Dark, September 28th, only on Netflix. Planet Money tip number 17. A great analogy doesn't have to make sense. Busier than a one-legged bobcat covering up his own crap on a frozen pond. Did you just make that up? (laughs) Well, yeah. Planet Money, a poetic podcast about the economy. Hello, Los Angeles, Southern California, San Diego, Orange County, West Covina, Before we get back to the show, I have an announcement for you all, a reminder for you all. We have a live show coming up in L.A. on October 2nd at the Montalban Theater in Hollywood. It's being presented by KPCC in person. I'll be talking with comedian and writer and all-around Renaissance man Guy Branham. We're going to talk about a lot, how he grew up gay in small-town California, how he's making it in his own unique way in Hollywood, and how he's trying to change the entire world of comedy. Uh, come hang with us. It's going to be a good time. I promise. We'll have some drinks in the lobby after the show. You can get tickets now at kp.cc slash ibam. kp.cc slash ibam. In all capital letters. All right. Do that now. Come hang with me. 
You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with two great guests, Ashley Brown, editor at NPR's Morning Edition, and Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter for NPR. Y'all, it's time for my favorite game, Who Said That? Ooh, and this and that. Who said that? Hey. So ready. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. The game is so simple. I share a quote from the week. You all have to guess who said that or get the story I'm referring to or get a key word. I'm not a stickler. Uh, but also because I'm, I'm not a stickler, the winner gets absolutely nothing. Some bragging rights, you know? Um, okay. I'm down. Okay. Let's you do ready? This. All right. First quote. I mean, it's not uncooked oatmeal, but it's pretty delicious. And I say, don't yuck my yum. Don't knock it until you've tried it. Who said that? No Cynthia idea. Nixon? Yes. <laughs> Boom. So <What? laughs> Cynthia Nixon, uh, who just lost her primary race Andrew against Cuomo. Andrew right. Cuomo for New York governor. Uh, so she's the former star of Sex in the City who decided to run for governor in New York. And one of the biggest moments of her now ended campaign was when she turned heads <laughs> by ordering a cinnamon raisin bagel with the following toppings on it. Locks capers, red onions, cream cheese, and tomatoes. New Yorkers damn near lost their minds. <laughs> Bagels are themselves a religion in yes, New York, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. But people were mad at her for doing this. They questioned her sanity. <laughs> her fitness for office, I'm <laughs> sure. Yeah, right, yeah. of course. <laughs> is, it, is it bad that my two feelings were like, one, do what you want to, and two, I don't care. So I did hear about the ba- the bagel toppings. Yes. I just did not hear her response. You know why? Because I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Danielle, you're up one zip. Next quote, ready? Yes. And this one, just tell me what we're talking about. The only thing worse than having a dongle is not having one when you need it. Uh, is this about the thing where Jared Kushner couldn't get into the... I hadn't heard about that, but God, I want to hear more about that later. There's a video out there that I saw people tweeting around. Oh, my goodness. He's like standing there waiting for someone to let him in. Anyway. No, it's different. I will read it again. Just tell me the topic (laughs) that I'm talking about. The only thing worse than having a dongle is not having one when you need it. I don't have the answer. (laughs) What do you use a dongle for? A device in your life that you had to have something to attach? Wi-Fi? What are you always trying to get Wi-Fi to use? Your phone. What kind of phone? An iPhone. Yes. An iPhone. <laughs> oh, come Thank on. Thank you for pushing me through that answer, Sam. <laughs> Sometimes I help. This is illegal coaching. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Listen, she I would there. rather lose before I cheat. <laughs> for those who are living under a rock, we're referencing Serena Williams right now. Wait, who? <laughs> All right. Anyways, this quote is all about uh, the new iPhone rollout, which began to happen this week. There was an Apple event in which they introduced the next generation of iPhone. And you know how with the last generation of iPhone, they took out the headphone jack. Right. Right. They wanted to push folks to Bluetooth headphones. So if you wanted to use old school headphones, you had to get a little dongle to make the headphones work. Now, Apple has said with these new iPhones, some of which cost up to more than $1,400, they're not going to include a dongle for you. They're going to make you pay extra for the dongle, $9 extra for the dongle, after you have paid $1,400 for a phone. That's $9 too far. I'm I'm already upset at Apple because, like, I still have my older generation's small iPhone. I just I just want Apple to make phones that are made for the smaller handed among us. And the smaller pocketed. Yes. Exactly. Most women True. when they do have pockets, they're smaller. You might as well just buy a MacBook. 
Just walk around with exactly. the MacBook. Exactly. Have an iPad in front of you. Thank Why you. not? I don't understand. Would you guys get this new iPhone situation thing? No, no. because you know what? I'm still very anti no traditional headphone jack. Exactly. Yeah. I yeah. like I like that. I'm team dongle. That's all I got to say. <laughs> uh, this game is tied. We haven't had a tie going into the third question in, in a few weeks, I think. So I am a, I'm a rete. Tiebreaker. <laughs> now it is. <laughs> Last and final quote. You can tell me who this person is talking about or tell me who the person is that said this quote. Either one will be fine. Uh, it is. If you want to get high in space, you lock yourself in your cabin and don't come out because you could break stuff inadvertently. Oh, man. Who said that? Who said that? See, like I said, when I'm listening I'm, on my own, I'm so good at this game today. Man, I, terrible. same here. Terrible at I'll it. I'll give you another quote from the same guy on the same topic okay. to see if it helps. <laughs> Can't they leave him alone? Let the man get high if he wants to get high. Oh, Elon Musk. It's about Elon Musk. Close right. enough. So this was America's favorite scientist, Neil deGrasse Tyson, oh, yeah. coming to Elon Musk's defense after Elon Musk, the Tesla and SpaceX CEO, came under fire for smoking marijuana during a live web broadcast of a podcast he taped with Joe Rogan. This story is so crazy. Wow, that's a lot of characters. Right, yeah. yeah. So Elon Musk has been uh, raising eyebrows for the last several months with erratic behavior in tweets. But on Joe Rogan's podcast this week, he was smoking weed during the podcast. Uh, That sent Tesla stocks down, and a lot of folks were talking about whether or not Elon Musk was doing the right thing. Neil deGrasse Tyson, the famed astrophysicist, said, nah, bruh, it's fine. (laughs) But then he went on to say, you might not want to get high in space. He continued in talking to TMZ and said, in space now, many things will kill you. So if you do anything to alter your understanding of what is reality, that is not in the interest of your health. Mm. So basically, Neil says, Elon, feel free to get high, but don't do it if you happen to be in space. Neil deGrasse Useful Tyson, information. always the voice of reason on right. really important right. <laughs> scientific questions. Your show is just an all-purpose survival guide. Yes. If I ever find myself in space, space. with right. <laughs> with some weed, like, I'll know. Rules <laughs> for life with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Love it. Um, who got that one? Uh, Daniel Oh, Ted, yeah. Oh. You won. Daniel's the winner. <laughs> Congratulations. Don't look so shocked. <laughs> I gotta say, I was a little shocked. Whoa! <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm Whoa. kidding. I'm kidding. I'm not kidding. <laughs> All right. Congratulations, Danielle. That concludes Who Said That. Uh, now it's time to end the show as we do every week. We ask our listeners to share with us the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag. Let's take a listen. Hi, Sam. This is Rick from Oakland. My favorite thing this week was watching my wife give a speech as president of our synagogue on Rosh Hashanah. Uh, It was personal, it was moving, it was powerful, and she rocked it. And I'm really proud of her. The best part of my week was finally making some headway on my dissertation after experiencing a bit of writer's block for the past few weeks. For the first time in a long time, I actually feel like I'm going to be able to finish this thing. Hi, Sam. David in Schenectady, New York. The best thing that happened to me this week is that 31 years after I started at Northwestern University as a first-gen financial aid student, family and friends joined me for my inauguration as the 19th president of Union College 
and the first person of color to hold this position. The best part of my week was my mom flying down from Kansas to go wedding dress shopping with me. And after suffering from body image issues my whole life, finding a dress that I think I look absolutely gorgeous in made me so, so happy. I can't wait for my fiance to see it on our wedding day. Hi, Sam. This is Marcella. And Nicolette. We are sisters from Anchorage, Alaska. And our whole week was fantastic because we spent it road tripping from Anchorage to Montreal, Quebec. It was epic. Hey Sam, it's William from New York, but originally from North Carolina, where I've just spent a very special week on the coast with the Nutt family. The very best part was a silver lining in an otherwise ominous situation when my sister, who's a teacher in Charleston, South Carolina, couldn't make it back because of mandatory evacuations for Hurricane Florence. So instead, we went out for sushi, we drank red wine and IPAs, and we laughed our tails off for one extra night. And as Florence makes her approach, I wish my people of the Carolinas all the safety and many of their own silver linings. Mm. Same. Hoping everyone in uh, the path of Hurricane Florence stays safe this weekend and comes out of that storm with a few best things of their own. Yeah. Thanks to all the voices you heard there. Rick, Sabrina, David, Katie, Marcella, and Nicolette, and William. I mean, I love that. You got wedding dresses, you got road trips, you got speeches. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. We listen to all those that come in. Uh, Thank you all for sharing them. Send us your best thing at any point throughout the week, any week. Just email me the sound of your voice to samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. All right, mama, we made it. We're done. We're getting out of here. Thanks to two of the best parts of my week, Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter for NPR, and Ashley Brown, editor at Morning Edition. Appreciate y'all. Thank you, Sam. This Thank was you, fun. Sam. Best part of my week being here with both of you. Yeah. Aww. And thanks, as always, to John Legend, who is like the valedictorian of the arts. Yes. Yeah. All the he awards got. he got. This week, the show was produced by Anjali Sastry with help from Kumari Devarajan, with extra help from Darius Rafian. Thank you so much, Darius. Uh, Steve Nelson is our director of programming, and our fearless editor is Jordana Hochman. Our big boss is NPR's VP of programming, Anya Grundman. I want to stop and take a second to congratulate one producer who was not with us this week. I'm talking about Brent Bachman. Uh, He's not here because he's getting married. Uh, Congrats to him and his soon-to-be wife, Acacia. I hope his marriage is as beautiful as the radio he makes every week. All right, listeners, refresh your feed Tuesday morning for a conversation on the Me Too movement in the sports world. Also, listeners, one more request for you. We're doing a special episode next month all about coming out day. We want to include you all in the show. So email me and tell me your coming out story. You could be on the show with me. All right. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Talk soon. Talk soon.